Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, you'll see in the bulletin that the sermon is entitled Conclusion. The revised title is Conclusion Part 1. Uh, as I was finishing my sermon, it just kept getting longer and longer. And so I decided to uh, split it into two so that we might be able to get home at a decent hour this evening. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, reading from verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, be encouraged the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to the end of this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, as we begin to consider these, these concluding exhortations that the Apostle gives, we ask for the help of your Spirit to understand what he is saying to them, to understand what your Spirit is saying to us. Lord, come again and open your Word to us and apply it to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this evening uh, to the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, and just like many of Paul's letters, probably even most of Paul's letters, it ends with this assortment of instructions and commands that can, if we're honest, uh, seem disjointed and unconnected. And it's easy for us uh, to look at this letter and to see Paul's logical progression throughout the letter. You remember how we saw how he began this letter with a very uh, in, intentional section that anchored the whole letter in Paul's confidence in the genuineness of the faith of his original audience. Right? And from there, he's gone on uh, to defend his ministry among the Thessalonians, countering his detractors, and especially those who were claiming that he was some kind of fly-by-night charlatan who had swept into Thessalonica to milk what he could from unsuspecting innocence and then disappeared quickly into the night. Countering that slander, Paul has carefully reminded his readers of how he poured himself out for them and how he has cared for them with the passion of both a mother and a father, a care and concern that has made him willing 
uh, to lose the invaluable assistance of Timothy for a time so that he could send Timothy to go and minister to the Thessalonians and then bring a report back to him. From there, that anchoring first half Paul has gone on in chapter 4 to address specific concerns and issues that presumably Timothy had reported back to Paul and continuing his care for them, but at a distance, uh, Paul has carefully instructed them in both ethics and in theology, exhorting them to devote themselves to the distinctly other-focused Christian ethic, not using people to satisfy ourselves, but gladly serving one another out of a gospel-driven love. And then, of course, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Paul has addressed their deep concerns about the return of Christ and what that means for both the Christian living and the Christian dead. All of it's been very logical. There's a logical progression throughout this uh, letter, and it has been very clear, and it has been very focused. But this evening, we come to verse 12, and, and as we do so, this letter suddenly seems to speed up as Paul brings his letter to a conclusion. In these final verses, we have something like like 15 different commands, and commands that can seem unrelated to one another. And of course, this is not unusual, right? We see Paul do this in other letters as well. Give this final section that can almost seem like, like housekeeping or, or like a postscript that here was Paul just about to lick the envelope, and he suddenly remembered a bunch of stuff that he forgot to say in the body of the letter, and so he quickly scribbles it at the end before he hands it to his, his messenger. It's almost as if there's an urgency to the sending of this letter that's precluded a more in-depth treatment of these topics, and so Paul just quickly puts them in here before he seals his envelope. But of course, I think we all know that that's not really what's going on here. And if we take a careful look at this final section, we'll find a distinct logic to what Paul chooses to end his letter with. And rather than being simply final instructions, as the ESV puts it, implying a disconnected assortment of instructions, what we find here is in reality at the end of this letter, it's, it's a discourse in three stages about the essential aspects of life in the local church. And we'll look at, at two of those this evening, and we'll look at the last one next week. And so, Paul begins here with this concluding exhortation about life within the church, and he tells his, his readers in verses 12 and 13 about how they are to understand their relationship to the church leadership. And Paul is strong here. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, from the wider context of Paul's other letters, I think it's safe to assume that Paul is referring here when he says to those who labor among you, to the elders of this congregation. So, why would he write this? Well, because it's true, right? This is not the only place where Paul has made it clear that the leadership of a local church is to be given uh, respect and honor. 
right? Perhaps most famously, it's what he writes in 1 Timothy 5, when he said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is clear. The elders of the local congregation are to be honored, and they're to be appreciated. And even, he says in our passage this evening, they're to be esteemed. They're to be thought of very highly by the congregation that they are called to, to lead. But notice his rationale. It's not because the elders are the princes of the congregation, but rather Paul gives two reasons for why the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, should be given such honor and respect. First of all, he says, it is because they are, in verse 12, over you in the Lord. That is to say that the elders of the church are worthy of respect, honor, and esteem, esteem not primarily because they are worthy of it, but because Christ is worthy of it. Their office is a delegated office. Their role is not so much that of a shepherd as that of an under-shepherd, one whose authority is delegated from Christ the true shepherd. And so, we're to understand the elders of the local church as Christ's special servants in that local church, and as such, they are to be honored. But secondly, lest any elder is tempted on the basis of this to simply pull rank, which we have to admit many elders in the history of the church have been tempted to and have yielded to that temptation. But here, Paul stops that. And in verse 13, he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, how do we understand their work? Well, well, we have to understand that as defined by what Paul says in verse 12, when he talks about them laboring amongst this congregation, right? This word that is translated uh, labor in our Bibles has the meaning of, of working hard, of, of toiling, of becoming weary. As I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, it's the same word that both Paul and Jesus use to refer to agricultural labor. It's a word that John uses in his gospel, to describe Jesus as he sat exhausted at Jacob's well and interacted with that Samaritan woman. As you heard me say, John Stott comments, it is a word that conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and pouring sweat. That's the word that Paul uses when he wants to describe the works of the elder, the work of the elders amongst the congregation. This is the word that he, he uses when he wants to describe the work of, of gospel ministry. So, we have to understand that in commanding his readers to highly esteem and respect their elders, Paul is not here encouraging a clergy-laity divide in which the clergy just swan around enjoying the deference of the people and the life of ease. No, Paul is saying that Christians should respect their leaders because faithful leaders are working for their good to the point of exhaustion. They are literally pouring themselves out night and day to lead and feed and protect 
the people of God. And this was an important point for Paul to make explicitly to the Thessalonians, because as we have seen, one of the chief tactics of the opponents of the gospel in Thessalonica was to attack the credibility of the church leadership. It's what they had done with Paul, accusing him, you remember, all the way back in chapter 2, of coming to the Thessalonians with, quote-unquote, words of flattery, and, and coming to them with a pretext for greed. And so, Paul was keen that no such accusation be levied against the local leadership, that no such accusation find any traction amongst this congregation. These elders are to be men who selflessly dedicate themselves to the work, they are to be, and they are to be men who are honored for doing so. Right? What Paul is saying in this first part of this, this concluding discourse of life within the church, he says, in, in the church you have to understand that we are called to, to harmony. There's different roles, there's different responsibilities, but in order to live well and to the glory of Christ, then we, must, then we must give honor where honor is due. In the face of, of all the external trials, Paul wants this congregation to love and care for one another and not end up turning on one another and devouring one another because of jealousy or suspicion. The elders, he says, are to work hard, and the congregation, he says, are to respect them for it. But secondly, Paul then moves down into the interpersonal relationships within the congregation. And he essentially repeats and reinforces what he had said in brief on the first half of chapter 4. He urges his congregation to, to lives of brotherly love. And what that means is that they will pursue a church community that is harmonious and compassionate a community that is so centered on Christ that it is distinctly self-forgetful. And it's not explicit here, but it doesn't take a lot of work to see that Paul is urging his readers to that Ephesians 5.21 ethic, that he is urging them to, to be a community that submits to one another out of their reverence for Christ. And specifically, Paul brings that out here in his command that the congregation admonish the idol. Now, the meaning of that is uh, somewhat lost in our translations. When we read that, we, we, we read Paul is saying, admonish the lazy. We're tempted to read uh, first, uh, uh, or Second Thessalonians back into 1 Thessalonians, right? We've, we will read there that Paul will exhort those who are, who are refusing to work probably, as we'll come to see, out of some kind of over-realized eschatology. And we're tempted to, to view Paul as saying, admonish those who are lazy, right? Tell them to get with it and get moving and get working. But that's not actually what he's saying here, right? What Paul is talking about is, is not those who are refusing to work, but rather he's, refusing to the, he's, he's referring to the disorderly. He's, he's referring to the undisciplined. Right, and you even see that in our ESV Bibles, verse 14, as a footnote, to admonish the idle or disorderly or undisciplined. Well, I wish they just put the footnote into the body of the text, because I think it's a better way to translate the word. 
right? What Paul, the word that Paul is using is the negation of the word that means ordered or prescribed. So, Paul is, is urging that those who are, who are self-centeredly disruptive within the church community, that's, that's the quote-unquote idol here, those who are being self-centeredly disruptive within the church community, he's saying they should be admonished so that they can be encouraged to get back into line and to live harmoniously within the church community. Paul tackles a a similarly self-centered problem in verse 15 when he says, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. The point that Paul is making, both at the beginning of verse 14 and in verse 15, is that the Christian life is one, as Paul will say in Ephesians at length, that is distinctly self-forgetful. We cannot view our own opinions highly. That is what the disorderly and the disruptive do. They think very highly of their own opinions. But neither do we demand vengeance for how we have been wronged. But instead, in, in both situations, we're called to humbly seek to do good to one another, even to those who have wronged or offended us. We're called, Paul says, to seek their welfare and to focus on their advancement. Again, Paul's main concern here is that the Thessalonians be harmonious, and they help one another, pressing one another on to more faithful lives in Christ, unified by their shared salvation and not tolerating those who would sow the seeds of division among them. But notice how Paul goes on, and in the second section, he really gives the lion's share to those who are struggling. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, why would the, why would the weak, the struggling, receive this particular attention? Well, because in this context, there really was a lot to be afraid of. Remember, the persecution that had driven Paul out of the city was still raging around them. The critics of Paul and his ministry were still active trying to undermine the Christian cause in Thessalonica. And it wasn't just the external threats. What we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, shows that there was some difficulty for some in getting their heads around their theology and understanding properly how to apply it to their lives. And so, while the church in Thessalonica as a whole was remarkably strong, there were, understandably within it, those who were weak. And Paul says, be careful with them. Don't, don't despise them. Help them. Right? And you remember, this could be an environment in which it would be very easy to despise the weak. In this combative environment in which they they live, there could be a real temptation to see weak believers as, as baggage that were slowing the church down. Or perhaps, at worst, to cynically see them as some kind of third column threatening the stability of the church. But Paul says, no, be, be gentle with them. Be careful with them. He says that we need to be tender with those who are, who are struggling. We need to help them to see more and more of the gospel, and we need to help them to see more and more of how that gospel applies to their lives so that they can grow strong in the Lord. We need to relate to them, in other words, as God in Christ relates to us. Not extinguishing that smoking flax or breaking that bruised reed, but rather encouraging the faint of heart. What Paul is doing here in these final verses 
is helping us see the character of the Christian life as we live in community with one another. And He wants us to see that despite the restlessness and the turmoil of the world around us, life within the church has a distinctly peaceful character. This, this life that Paul is describing here, of life within the church, it is one that is devoid of egos. It is one that is absent of politicking. It is one that is free of pride. It is a life that is focused wholly on seeking one another's welfare within the body. Now, in the particular context in Thessalonica, it doesn't take much work to see why this was so important. Right? As the world raged around them, it was vital that if they were to survive, they, were, they had to be a true band of brothers, supporting one another, helping one another in the midst of that opposition. But you understand it's, it's the same in our context. It's the same in every context. Right? As we're seeing in, in Sunday school, the healthy Christian life is a life that is lived in community. As we joyfully seek to help one another, to hold fast to our confession, as we face the, the difficulties of life in a fallen world, whether that be opposition from the culture in which we live, or whether it be the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, whatever it is, we are called to live in harmonious Christian community, loving and caring for one another and seeking one another's welfare. The picture that Paul paints here is one that we need to aspire to, that this church be a loving fellowship in which we seek to encourage one another in our pursuit of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, these words of Paul that challenge us, that really come and, and make us examine ourselves and whether this is our character and whether this is the character of the church that we are aiming towards. Father, we do pray that this church would be a congregation that is marked by a respect and an esteem for the elders, a genuine honoring of those whom God has called to pastor this congregation. But we pray for our elders, that you would help the elders of this congregation to be men who truly labor for the good of this flock, men who don't just sit back and receive accolades, but genuinely break a sweat in how much they love and care for this body. We pray for others in leadership as well, for those who serve on committees and direct various ministries. Lord, help them to have the same spirit, that they would pour themselves out for this church, and that they would be honored by this church for doing so. We pray also that within the body, we would have a genuine care and concern for each other, that we would not have amongst us this, this idle, this disorderly, this disruptive influence, but that we would have this self-effacing ethic, that we would care for one another, that we would seek to do good to one another, especially those who are struggling amongst us, that we would be quick to come alongside them, to speak a word in season, to encourage them in their walk, that they might grow strong in the Lord. Father, we pray for this church. We thank you for all that you have done within the life of this church, and we pray for more, that we might continue to grow solid and sure, and that we might grow in, in the depth of our fellowship as well as in the number of our fellowship. May this be a place in which Christ is exalted and that that is evident in how we love one another. For as our Lord Jesus said, this is how 
they will know that you are mine, your love for one another. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.